Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Making the Scene podcast. I am your host, Eric Sipple, and what you are about to listen to is the first episode of Making the Scene that I recorded. It's essentially my pilot episode, and it was recorded before I had a title, and so I wanted to just give you an introduction so that you knew it was, in fact, the Making the Scene podcast you are about to listen to, and to assure you that though it is a pilot episode, it is a discussion just as interesting as all the others you'll hear this season. So, Please enjoy, and welcome to Making the Scene. Welcome, everybody. I'm Eric Sipple, and you are here now for the pilot episode of an as-yet-not-named podcast about movie scenes uh, that I'm going to be talking to filmmakers and film critics about their favorite scenes. Now, it may be a little strange that we don't have a title yet, but like any good network pilot, um, we are just kind of figuring out what works right now as we decide whether or not this show is going to get picked up for a full season. And... Also, like a good network series, there's a pretty good chance you're going to be listening to this not as the first episode, but somewhere out of order because we always want to confuse the audience. But welcome hmm. to uh, the the show, and I am joined today by my pilot episode guest, Ken Edwards. How are you doing, Ken? Pretty great. Thanks for having me, Eric. Thank you for uh, running this experiment with me. Um, so just to give an idea of what we're going to be doing today, every time every week or whenever we're doing this. I think it's going to be a bi-weekly podcast. Every two weeks you're going to join me and I will have a new guest and they will have brought to me one of their favorite movie scenes. And after they bring that scene to us, both of us are going to take some time to look at it, rewatch it, take our notes, and then on the podcast discuss from every angle that we can think of from lighting to editing to performance to story what it is that made that scene really work for them. It's kind of a mini film school for us that you get to listen in on. So today, um, as I said, we have Ken. And before we get into what scene we're going to be doing, uh, Ken, would you like to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about uh, who you are and what's out there that you've done? Sure. Uh, I'm Ken Edwards. Um, It's a pleasure to be here, to uh, be starting this podcast adventure with you because I've started a few of my own. Um, as of this recording, the day we're recording this, um, which is weeks ago for you people, uh, I released the 50th episode of my podcast. So let's get to the point. I'm really proud of it. Um, it's basically my um, mega produced blog. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just me talking about what I want with who I want, uh, however I want to. And the format always changes and it's really interesting. And I would love if you guys would listen to it. Um, but my other podcast, which might make me more make me more suited to talk about things here, is called Project Batman. And what Project Batman is, it started as uh, just my friend Vincent Otterbray in a bar one night saying, you know what would be a cool idea for a movie? And I was like, wait, hold on. Let's have that conversation on a recording. So then we went home, had that conversation, and we stuck with it. We decided, hey, podcasts create accountability, and we're going to make a movie. So now, week after week, you can listen to the podcast Project Batman and listen to us write, animate, and create 
this movie and we've been doing it for over a year. It took a year to uh, get the whole idea formulated and write the script. Um, the 50th episode of that came out a while ago and it's the table read and it's produced with score. And I would love if you all would listen to that. Also, you can go to batmanimmortal.com and read the script there and follow the updates and the podcast and all the artwork we're working on for the storyboards. Cause that's the phase we're in right now. Um, but those are my two big projects I do in the world as of this moment. And I really urge you to go check out uh, Project Batman at batmanimmortal.com. It's a really um, ambitious and excellent sort of – it's a community of artists coming together to make this project that they probably could not have done on their own because there's a lot of work. There's animation. There's character design. There's scripting. There's voicing. That is a lot of work, and I just am completely bowled over by the work they're doing, and it's one of the reasons I'm excited to have Ken with us today to be able to do this. Um, And – Actually, I just from a personal note, Ken is actually the first and so far only person to have ever interviewed me in person for his podcast. He sat in the very room that I'm podcasting from right now and interviewed me about my novel, Broken Magic, and it was a really excellent experience. So I don't know if I ever properly thanked you for that, Ken. So thank you. That was a no, very awesome thing. No problem. It, it was actually, even though it was an hour and a half long, I think it was one of my shorter episodes, but I think it felt really concise and, and I got a lot of good feedback from it. And, and yeah, um, I'm not sure what number episode that was, but it was back in what, like February or something? No, April. April. It was in April. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, definitely check out Ken's projects. Um, but and if and if you want to help uh, us, we're still in the process. I'm working on Batman Immortal. So if you are an animator, get get at us. Yeah, uh, artists join the join the struggle. You your skills are needed, and I think you'll be joining a really awesome project if you go in. So, um, so today Ken and I are going to be discussing a scene from M Night Shyamalan's films. Signed, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm gonna do that again. Um, today, Ken and I are going to be discussing a scene from M. Night Shyamalan's film Sign, starring Mel Gibson and Joaquin Phoenix. Um, he's chosen a, a scene that's a very interesting and character-oriented scene um, from the middle of the movie. I'm going to let him talk a little bit about what scene he's done. Uh, Ken, what scene are we doing and why are we doing it? Okay, I call it the whole coincidence versus fate uh, scene. Because that's really... Or, yeah, coincidence versus fate. That's what this whole... The whole structure of this movie is based upon that whole argument and what you believe and what evidence can lead your thoughts to uh, the conclusions that you're drawn to. And this scene is a very simple scene. You know, when you asked me about what scene I wanted for or, or I wanted to do, uh, this is one of my favorite movies. I know M Night gets a bad rap, but I think this is his best film by far. Um, he, there are two other scenes that I think, uh, use aliens that are visually stunning that of course are immediately more memorable. I think of when you just think back on this movie being the scene where, uh, Joaquin Phoenix is watching the alien footage in the closet. And then also when Mel Gibson is out in the cornfield and he sees the alien leg. Um, but this is the scene that always, that I always go back to that. I remember that I think about, um, and it's really just the pinnacle of, a lot of things to me. M. Night Shyamalan's filmmaking, Mel Gibson's acting. We'll talk about the technical aspects of a lot of that in a little bit. But um, it, it, the, the central argument of the discussion that the characters are having is what draws me to this sort of th- scene in a movie. So, yeah. And, and this almost serves, and not every movie has this, but I, I kind of consider this one of those thesis statement scenes for the movie. I mean, this you know, some movies, they're, the the thematic idea is sort of 
dripped out over the movie and you have to put it together. Um, and some movies and stories are really do a really interesting thing where you have a scene that is the state, you know, the thesis of the film, the thematic thesis that's there. And this is really that. I mean, this is the film in a nutshell. If you understand this scene, it explains the rest of the movie. So I'm, I'm glad that you picked it. And actually, Ken, even though there are more uh, visually stunning scenes in this movie, I think this is one of the two scenes that always stuck with me from this. The other one being the I'm insane with anger scene, which is completely oh, different. Just definitely. because I can't help but shout I'm insane with anger whenever I can. But <laughs> I'm um, losing my mind. <laughs> Uh, but this is definitely um, this is the scene that stuck with me, and I had forgotten. In fact, I thought that I, f- I thought this was actually two scenes. When you when you told me about this that we were going to do this scene, I thought I was going to have to hunt around to find which one you were talking about because for some reason I thought that the the scene that you know there's two halves of the conversation: one discussing the idea of coincidence versus faith, and then the other where he finally Mel Gibson's character Graham finally reveals sort of a little bit about his wife's death. Because um, mm-hmm. the, there's a, a lot of aspects of grief in this movie, and his wife has died, and it's shaken his faith. And and anyways, I thought that those two halves were two different scenes. So I was when I came back to this, and I found that it was actually one. I, I, this scene obviously stuck with me because it was there was obviously so much in it that I thought it was taking up more than it was. So yeah, it's it's a huge central point of this movie. Yeah, I, li- I like that that um, idea, the thesis scene. Yeah, it's 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 definitely like watching this. It's sort of coming back. It was like I remembered the whole movie just coming back to the scene so mm-hmm. uh, it was really really interesting choice and i'm excited about it um so i guess first let's talk a little bit about um you know story-wise what's going on on the scene how does it how does it fit into what came before and what comes after um would you mind placing us in the movie ken sure um this is what happens after okay graham is a man who has lost his faith his wife is dead his brothers moved in uh to his farmhouse to help him look after his kids um Graham, there have been a lot of interesting things happening in the world that imply that aliens are around, and he's been putting it off and trying not to listen or believe it. Um, he wants his kids to have a normal life and childhood. Um, he doesn't want them to have to be dealing with things like this. But then he goes out and on his farm and actually almost comes into contact with an alien, and he is like, okay, it's time to turn on the TV. We need to, everybody's dealing with this. We need to, um, there's no more denying the situation we're in. Aliens are living in our backyard. So uh, the whole family, uh, Graham and then Meryl, his brother played by Joaquin Phoenix and their kids, Morgan uh, played by, who is it? It's one of the um, Culkin kids, Rory Culkin and uh, Abigail Breslin playing Bo. Uh, they all watch the footage of UFO lights over a city um, the first time the world ever sees them. And I think um, as the hours go on, the kids fall asleep and we sort of fade into the scene we're about to discuss. And that's um, the kids asleep on Merrill and Graham and all the lights are out and they only have their adrenaline, fear, and the glare of the TV to go on. And things come out in moments like that. Yeah, one thing I think is interesting about this scene story-wise is it really exemplifies um, you know, what this movie is, which is that it's an alien invasion movie where, by and large, we don't leave this family's house. And when we do, we're still sticking with a member of the family and we're only going in the local area. But it's, it's a very localized alien invasion movie. It's not about the people fighting an alien invasion. It's about people 
who have no way of affecting what's going to happen, mm-hmm. watching this these events unfold around them that are that are awe-inspiring and terrifying because of that. And it's so it's so relatable just because it's about it's what every single one of us would do. We would get with the people we love and only worry about surviving. Nobody in this story is ever concerned with saving the world. Exactly. And and what we have here is as Ken said, we have a scene story-wise that is uh, the basically two people that can't sleep continuing to watch 24-hour news of this event unfolding and trying to make sense of it. And that then that's really the the core that kicks off this scene is is um, Meryl, who is is very afraid, um, looking for comfort from his former pastor, uh, older brother. Uh, is his brother right? Am I? Am I yes. getting that? Okay. I, I, I brief memoir. I was like, am I misremembering their relationship? But no, it's his older brother who, who is now a former pastor, and trying to get him to be the guy he was before. Um, and I think the movie. This is sort of our last really quiet scene in the movie i think that the that things start ratcheting up after the scene if i remember properly yeah there's a there's definitely well there's no more denying that aliens are a thing after this m night Shyamalan has a tendency to keep scenes quiet even if they're very suspenseful but um yeah this is the last time that we have that we feel really secure in any way yeah and and because of that um you know we we there's a there's a quiet power to this scene and and the what I find really interesting about the scene so the the conversation that plays out in the scene if you describe it as a synopsis actually sounds very simple Merrill asks um, Graham if if he thinks the world's going to end and Graham says yeah probably and Merrill asks for comfort and instead of giving him easy comfort um, Graham describes two types of people right and would you want to give us that? Ken, I think this. Yeah, uh, the two types of people are those who um, have faith in something and those who don't. Um, and really, he's absolutely right. If you kid could divide the world into two different kinds of things, it's either men, women, or children and adults, or that, really. Uh, um, but he. Uh, he he defines it so well, and what I love so much about this movie is is existential issues always turn me on, and and I'm not a Christian in any way. I'm agno- I'm an agnostic if, 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 if what I am could be defined as or had to be defined as anything. But really, this movie, even though it's about a man coming back to his Christian God, still speaks to me because it's all framed in a way that we all can relate to. Do you have faith? Do you believe in anything? Is there hope? Or is the world just random and nothing? And and I love the way it frames that in the scene by saying, you know, there's they're looking at these lights on the TV, um, the, in the sky, and you know, either you look at the lights and you think that it's a sign of something, the sign that there is something more out there, and you're comforted by the fact that you're getting this sign, or you think that there's nothing out there, and these are not a sign of anything, not at least a sign of anything from a higher power, and you're filled with fear mm-hmm. by it. And I I love the way that breaks down the whether or not you see a larger plan to the universe or not, which is really more what it's about than faith in any specific creed. Right. It's about faith in whether or not there is anything beyond the physical world that we understand. It's, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it, but, but and I, I'm actually an agnostic as well, Ken. And, and I, um, and I think that it's sort of like the line between atheism full, you know, being completely 
um, opposed to the idea that there's anything else, or at least wondering whether or not there's something out there. And I think that's why this speaks to both of us in some ways, because it gives us an entry point that we don't need to be faithful in anything specific, but maybe we would like to think that the universe has a little more of a plan for us than cold, empty death. Exactly. Um, exactly. So he gives the, this excellent speech about how there's two types of people. And and it ends – his speech, this sort of the dividing point of the scene comes when uh, Graham says, so you have to ask yourself, um, are you the type of person that believes in miracles or, or not? And and um, he uh, Merrill gives this speech in return about – which he gives, which I think is really funny. It, it's a really profound talk. Merrill's speech – it's almost silly, right, Ken? I mean it's, it's, about, it's, yes. it's about – it's about a story about him trying to kiss a girl at a party when he was younger. But but the reason it's so perfect is because what he's saying in in that one moment. Uh, well, I'll, I'll wrap back around to this. But I saw you, and, and I don't mean to to be this way about it. <laughs> no, I'm not being anyway. But uh, I saw when you were watching this the other day, tweeting about it, and you were saying how um, you think the the climax of the movie is a little interrupted by the editing choice, and I totally can understand that and the pace of how things are going, but. Um, what it comes down to is I think Shyamalan is trying to, in film, represent the moment that we that everything lines up, that the planets line up and everything makes sense. And he alluded to that, he had, you know, his nightmares haunted him or his memories haunted him every time he would go to sleep leading up to then. But then in that moment when he said swing away, that's when it all made sense. And that's why he had to show that scene then. And the reason that scene works so perfectly, I think, e- even in a subconscious way, is because that idea is planted right here with Meryl's little moment of being at a party in his 20s or whatever, or, or whatever. I don't know when he, when, what age he was, but he said this hot girl uh, one, uh, was looking at him, looking at him like she was interested, and he went in to kiss her, and he stopped because he had gum in his mouth. And he leaned over to go put the gum in a paper cup. And when he turned back around, Randa McKinney throws up all over herself. And he was like, I would have been traumatized and wouldn't be able to speak to you right now if if that had happened to me, if I'd been kissing her when she'd thrown up. So I know everything's a miracle. So that idea of everything lining up and life making sense to him was planted right there. And it can so it can be anything. It can be anything at all that that... Uh, all of the pieces will line up for you at some point or another if if it's if that's how it's meant to be. And the, the same thing happened to Merrill and Graham, just in very different ways. That's very you know it's very interesting your read on that moment in the scene, which I actually read a little differently than you. Um, I read that scene as Merrill not entirely believing what he was selling in that moment. That you know there's a moment where Merrill looks very afraid of um, based on what. Um, Graham has told him and then he has this moment where he's like wait I have the story I can tell and he launches into the story about this girl and at the end of it, it just sort of ends with this I'm a miracle man and I feel like that story is try- him trying to convince himself more than it is him believing it I don't I don't think you're wrong but that might be part of the argument on the more atheist side of things of like when things get tough we're always trying to convince ourselves we're always bringing up old stories that we're not thinking of if we're not in a moment of fear or doubt so (laughs) he's only point he might have he might have been thinking that way but he hadn't been living his life in the in the way that everything is a miracle until he it came down to a moment where 
you know, uh, fight or flight where he was forced to. And, and he found this life preserver, whether yep. or not it, whether or not he's manufactured that life preserver or not. At that moment, he looked for one and he found it. Yeah. Um, and it does. Yeah. He and it and and then from that point, he tells the story. And um, we have another moment where Mel Gibson's like, OK, great. You're Mel Gibson. Uh, Grammy's like, you're comforted. Then we're good. And he and Merrill badgers him into answering well, Mer- Merrill asks him first. Yeah. He asks he, him, which type are you? And he says, well, if you're comforted, then it doesn't matter what I think, which is uh, it's a great reaction. It's just a great little moment. It's a great answer and non-answer. I mean, he's already answered the question, but but Merrill refuses to accept that and mm-hmm. needs him to actually answer it. Mm-hmm. And and so Graham does so with a story about his wife's death and the last words that she said to him, mm-hmm. which are nonsense. Um, she says, see, and she says, swing away. And then yep. she dies, which uh, Graham writes off as, neuro- I believe, neurons randomly firing in her brain. Is that how he... Yeah, yeah. The synapse is firing um, as her brain died. But in, And I love that he doesn't... Like, that the ending doesn't negate the science of that. Like, yeah. like he just happened to relate the two things. It's not like she was saying that for him to tell Meryl to swing away when the aliens had their child, you know? Right, right. It's, it's you know, it's the idea that a random event can be a sign it's, mm-hmm. it can be both at the same time which is kind of always the way that i read a lot of the mo- this movie that exactly it's you know these these moments that are are rooted in science can also be a piece of a a larger tapestry um but he you know he tells the story and and it lands him firmly on the fact that there is no one out there there is no one coming for us and we are alone um and we exit the scene on that note <laughs> um yeah wonderfully uh happy uh, moment um, where uh, Meryl does not get what he wants from his brother in that yeah. scene. Um, I, I think it's a great it's a great scene because it encapsulates the argument we're going to see for the rest of the movie, and it does it at the right time uh, before we start getting into the actual scary alien stuff. We've proved there's aliens. We've proved that, or at least something's come down, and it's going to be bad news. And now we're all sort of um, rooted in the character aspects of what this means to them. It's not just about an alien invasion. It's also about whether or not Merrill's belief that there are miracles and that this is not a portent of doom mm-hmm. um, and Graham's belief that, well, I always knew this kind of thing was coming. It's kind of the subtext of that. Like, well, we were, all, we, were all, we were all doomed one way or another. There isn't any meaning to the world. Who cares whether it's this is yeah. sort of his, his approach to it. And and the alien lights could be anything that like anything could bring on this discussion out of people. It just depends on on where you're at and what you're discussing. But the thing that hit me yesterday, like a ton of bricks that I didn't think about because I was so young, was this movie came out in ten, in 2002, right after 9/11. Like that, there has to be some sort of subtext in in you know, Meryl's reaction to seeing that horrifying image on TV and then them sitting here on the TV not being able to, like, wondering if everything is going to be okay. Um, That's a really good point. And, you know, it's been so long since I've seen the movie, or at least it's been so long since the first time I saw it, which I actually saw it in the theater when it came out, that I had kind of forgotten the context of it. Yeah. Can I ask how old you were when the movie came out, Ken? Sure. I was 2002. Quick math. 14. Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was I was early early twenties when that hit. I, I want to say twenty three, maybe twenty two, mm-hmm. twenty three. Um, and that's interesting. I, I think that's really this was a very uh, formative movie for you then, wasn't it? 
Well, well, I didn't. It didn't hit me that way that it, back then. I didn't have the. I didn't understand the language of film enough to know that there was context of of subtlety. Yeah, that it could relate to other things. Like I, I, I would only go to the movies to escape. You know, I liked Unbreakable and I like Aliens, so I'm going to go see this. <laughs> it did was this a scene that jumped out at you later? Um, in life yes. for you, like so later on rewatches, this scene started to jump out at you. Yeah, absolutely. I would say in my early twenties is when stuff like this would um, start to become very meaningful to me. It, it, it was it was the suspense and just the filmmaking and the the paranoia of aliens that that spoke to me back then i think interesting interesting yeah um so so i want to talk a little bit about which which says i'm sorry to interrupt you but that that says a lot that like i could still have been like even back then when i saw it in theaters i could be so captivated by this movie even though there isn't a lot of alien play in it like like that's sort of the magic of of Shyamalan's filmmaking is that the aliens are such a huge presence in this but their screen time is what 17 seconds maybe yeah, I mean, we we only see the the way we see the aliens is through the way the characters are afraid of the aliens and the way they're mm-hmm. reacting to the presence of aliens in their in their world. That's not, and and it really speaks to the power of filmmaking that is character based that that focuses us on the people that we don't need to see the aliens as long as we believe the people that we care about are afraid of them. Yeah. And and we understand the audience. So really, you're right. We see a hand under a door at one point. We see a leg at one point. And we get one scene of the alien um, in its full body at the mm-hmm. end. And that's it. Yep. That's pretty much it for the aliens. I mean, I think that we get – the only other time we see them in, in full form is um, on a video cassette very briefly. Yeah, um, and I, I love that they're always represented even at the – even in the very last scene where we see them in full form. Most of that scene, I think, other than two shots, are all off of the TV. Like, the TV plays such a huge role in this movie as it represents what everybody's experiencing all at the same time. But I love how he chose to even do that at the end, too, just to show that, like, maybe this is what everyone's experiencing still. And um, that... Uh, I mean, that even plays into the scene that we just watched, like the the light in their eyes, that perfect angle of of light reflection um, on those two shots over the couch of Marilyn Graham is is from the TV. Yeah, yeah. This is a this scene is bathed in the TV and nothing else. Um, the lights in their eyes is reflected off the TV, and the the cool blue of the scene's lighting is all um, all from the television. It's it's hovering over them the entire time they're discussing and we come in on them looking at the TV and go back out on them looking at the TV. Well, we come in on them looking at the TV through the lenses of two glasses of water, which will be their savior at the end of the movie. Yes. Yes. So, um, so yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about the editing. Um, so okay. we're here, yeah, no, this is a good time because so, you know, we, we come in on the scene, actually the, the this is actually a scene where I want to talk a little bit about quickly about where we come in. We come in, um, almost from this very close to the same shot, of um, previously where the it's the whole family. It's the kids and the adults watching the television and the light is very orange at that point. It's daytime and they're watching the lights on TV and then we dissolve to this shot that Ken described of looking through the lenses of the, these two water glasses and these water glasses are omnipresent. The daughter is always leaving them all over the house um, and then we pan away from the, the, the water glasses to get them on the couch and then from that point, we cut, and we're, we're really only between two profile shots the rest of the scene. Um, we get an establishing shot, and then it's their faces the rest of yep. the way. Um, it's a very simply edited scene. 
Yeah, I, I. But his choice of when he cuts, depending on who is or isn't talking, um, is very interesting. It, uh, it, it is. You, we start almost in a na- in a normal movie thing where whoever's talking, the camera's on them primarily. It's not always the case, but a lot of the time, whoever is talking has the camera on them, which is a pretty standard Hollywood editing technique. Yep. Um, right until, and then we get um, our first speech from uh, Graham. He starts describing the two people, and we hang on him pretty much the entire speech, right? I mean, we're like, we're with him yep. this whole time. Um, and that's and you mentioned that it was interesting when they talk, when they, where they decide to cut. We get our first cut right near the end of that speech, right when he starts saying, what kind of, per- what kind of person are you? And we, mm-hmm. we go to Meryl's face, and I found, I don't know what you, the, the first time I, actually, I take this back. The first three times I watched this, I noticed that cut. But what I didn't notice until the third time I watched it was when we cut, we push in on Mer- on Meryl's face at that point. We we actually get our only other camera move at that mm-hmm. moment. Um, and that push is kind of powerful. As Graham, as Graham is just, it's as Graham is like a, a describing what he thinks that we push in on Meryl, you're saying? Yeah, we, so we get, he goes, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I have it written down here. He says, oh, you, what you have to ask yourself is what kind of person are you? And we cut to Meryl's face. And That's the right. rest okay. of that, and the rest of that speech where he's like, are you the kind of person that believes in miracles or the kind of person? And the whole time we're pushing in on Meryl's face as he reacts. And, and like, it's, it's so interesting to think about the language of film, like what that means. And suddenly, like to me, once it does that, when he poses that question and then it's just someone listening, well, we were all just very attentively listen, listening. So it's like Shyamalan is straight up saying, so audience, what do you think? Yeah, yeah. And what I think is interesting that the, most of the speech, he is talking to us, right? We are, our our attention is on him, the speaker. We are watching a man tell a story at that point. And then he asks us a question, what kind of person are you? And we cut to Merrill, and by A, cutting to him at that moment and pushing in on him, we sort of, our, our reactions and his reactions, I think, kind of merge a little bit at that point. We're watching his fear, and it gives the weight of the question back to us. Because we see him reacting with such weight to that moment. So I feel like that sort of yeah. lets us in. On, it takes us from a passive listener to being forced to react to the emotion of being asked that question. That's kind of how I saw that. Yeah. That, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and another thing that's interesting, I don't know if you noticed, we stay in that tight shot of, of Meryl the rest of the time. We never pull back out again. The rest of the time we cut back and forth, once we're pushed in on his face, we stay pushed in on him. And that's when he starts the story. Yeah, yeah. He starts the yeah. story with it. Well, yeah. He starts the story with a close up on him, and he stays there. Right. So, would this be a good time to mention? I know we're talking about editing, but I feel like they go hand in hand because that moment plays into it. Is the music of this scene? Yeah. Let's talk about. Um, that. Okay. J- James Newton Howard does the score for Science, and it's un- it's not available anywhere, which pisses me off. But uh, it it. It's very subtle through the whole movie, and this scene uh, is another prime example of that. But it only is there for, I don't think it's even half the scene, or it's only half the scene. Um, We only have a very low score um, when Graham is posing those questions, and it makes it very, um, very intense. And the moment it drops out, when Meryl's about to answer his question, and the scope of the mood changes when, you know, Graham's being existential, sort of, and then uh, uh, Meryl's talking about a party where he wants to kiss a girl, that's when the music drops out. And I don't know if it's intended to be that way, 
or if everyone else reads it that way. But I find sort of a comedic effect in that tone shift with the music dropping out. Interesting. Um, you think it's talk about that a little bit. I'm I'm curious what you mean by that. Okay, I don't. I, I'm not sure. Just with the music, it sounds so um, intense, and we're all really, really involved in it. And then when the music drops out, you're only left with. It just is an interesting juxtaposition of of how people frame things. Like Graham is Graham is framing th- everything in his life through the lens of uh, my wife died years ago and it sucks. And Meryl is framing everything through the lens of, well, as long as I get through the day okay, then I guess everything is all right. And well, like, he's not worried about it as much. He's not thinking about it as heavily. And I guess the way it's represented when the, I don't know how the music cutting out plays into it, but I find that juxtaposition um, very interesting. Like it's like Meryl lives in the real world. Like, like sort of when the music cuts out, all we're left with is what's in the moment. And he's like, well, in the moment that worked out for me. <laughs> That's, that's a really interesting read. I have a, a like a, a related but slightly different, and this is actually goes back, I think, to our difference in reads on his story, actually. I think this is interesting. So first of all, I, I want to note that I the first time I watched this scene, I, I came out of it thinking there wasn't any score. I thought that there had not been any music the entire scene, and that was one of the things I wrote down was that I wasn't going to be able to talk about the score on this one. And when I went back and rewatched, I realized that the score is present through the entirety of Graham's first half of the speech where he's describing the two types of people. And then it builds. It builds and builds during the very end of it up to the point when he asks uh, Meryl what type of person he is. And then, as Ken said, it drops out at that point. And it never comes back. It's it's gone the rest of the scene. And my read on why that was gone is because that is the point when when we feel alone, much more alone at that point. He drops that question on Meryl. And Meryl is afraid that he's alone. And he attempts to comfort himself by telling this amusing story that convinces himself that he believes in miracles, which he at this moment, because Graham doesn't, he's afraid that he doesn't as well because he goes off the cues from his brother. So that music leaves us alone and it never comes back. We're left alone and forced to deal with the emotions of that scene without any cues from the movie from that point forward. We are cut loose from that point forward. I like your read more. That I mean, that, <laughs> I, that that kind of might even be what I was trying to articulate, but you did it a whole lot better. The the just sense of like feeling alone, like because music in a scene it always guides your emotions. Yeah, um, it tells you what to think sometimes, and and when you're asked such a such a pivotal question, um, and then the music drops out, yeah, then you are felt like oh shit, I'm on the spot. Like I I really like the way you you put that. But I do think there's a lot of merit in what you're saying. I think there is sort of a comedic effect to it because, like, you it's interesting. You see that look of fear, and then it goes right into this like, hey, I got this story for you, man. You know, like is totally the the reaction change he has, and he's mm-hmm. kind of filling the space with his own goofiness. You know, yeah, we, we cut we cut it out, and it's only him, and then. It's the Merrill show, and he's got to find a way to fill the emptiness, and he fills it with goofiness, which is, and it does sort of serve an extra comedic effect by kind of leaving him on his own to do that. So I think that's a really, a really good point. Um, so yeah, we then we're sort of left, in the, and the score is very ambient in this movie. So even the score that's there is very like oscillating between two chords almost, with a little bit of extra stuff as we mm-hmm. go in. So it's easy to miss that it was there in the first place, but it's a which I think actually helps that kind of subtle change in the scene that you don't necessarily even know the music was there if you weren't paying yeah. attention. Um, so, and then from that point forward, we 
we pretty much, again, kind of reverse cut back and forth between the two of them um, until we get back to Graham's second story about his wife, which we we pretty much hang with him again um, through that entire story and and are left with, I, I think the last two shots are just reaction shots of the two of them. Meryl, uh, Graham turning back to the TV after having said we're all fucked, basically. Um, and Meryl being forced to deal with his brother saying, sorry, dude, right. can't help you. Um, and we get those those last shots, but really, like, most of the editing from that scene just hangs us with, with Graham. We're not even given a, a lot of Meryl's reactions to that mm-hmm. story until the end. And I think right after that is when um, it fades into the first part of showing us what happened that night with Colleen. Yes. In fact, we we get we end the scene on a framing, sort of the same frame shot that we got at the beginning, which is the two of them on the couch with the glasses on the left. Mm-hmm. You know, we come in on the glasses and we pan right and we get everyone on the couch, the two adults with the kids laying on them. Um, and then we cut to those two profile shots and then they both turn back to the TV. And when they turn back to the TV, we cut back to that scene facing them, which I almost consider TV point of view is kind of how I see those right. shots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then and then you're right, we fade out to the actual scene of him getting to, not at least not the entire of the scene, but we get a chunk of him driving up to see his wife after she'd been in the car accident. Which is like, and after that, it, it, it stops abruptly as he wakes up. So it says that he, he wakes up on that couch. So he fell asleep on this couch and then this thing haunts him. This thing that he just described haunts him yeah. every every night, and that's why he is the way he is. And and I think that one thing that's that's that kind of goes along, you know, some of the things you were saying. You know, we we talked a little about the ending of the movie and how we have to see some of more of that. And while I still have some problems with the way they cut the ending, um, we do get the impression that he's not dreaming his way through the entire sequence. You know, he's right. waking up between it. It's not really until the end of the movie that. Not only do we get to see the end, but that he's facing the end, too. He describes it very coldly, but it's almost like he's not experiencing it himself. He's not experiencing those last moments. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can kind of see that as we're riding along his experiences. And the only time we yeah. really get it is his his cold description of it in this scene. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Good, Yeah. Um, so one thing I wanted to talk about, Ken, I wanted to get your impression of this is the lighting in this scene, because there's one lighting detail that stuck out with me. And I, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts. Um, it, there's two that on our two shots, we have, we have Meryl's face and, and Graham's face and Meryl, it's blue light on his face, just like from the TV. And there's bluish light in the background against the walls, which I think is also meant to be the TV. Um, mm-hmm. and then we cut to Graham. There's the bluish light on his face in the TV, but behind him, we can kind of see like the kitchen or something. And there's a light on in there and it's orangish. He has a warm light on behind him and Meryl, Meryl has a cool light on behind him and that's very interesting I'm looking at it right now and, and I didn't even think about that those details I'm that's to, awesome what do you I'm, I'm, I'm try, I've been trying to puzzle this out I, want, I wanted to come on with like a really intelligent thing to say about this I feel like it's not just a a random cinematography choice I feel like this is really deliberate and I'm trying yeah, to figure because, out what they're saying with this yeah, because the way the door frame um, is right behind uh, Graham's head, it it definitely looks like it is framing him in that light. Um, I mean, you use the word warmer, and I don't know if um, technically people talk that way, but yeah, he, I mean, he's supposed to be the warm fatherly figure watching over this family, and maybe like 
he still is that even though he's trying to deny it. I mean, most of this movie, he's in a place of denial of what he actually is. I mean, he is a man of God. He, he proves that when he's in the when he's in the basement and he, sa- he says, I hate you as Morgan's having his asthma attack, because you wouldn't say I hate you to God if you didn't believe in him. You'd just say I hate this or you'd just say fuck. Yeah. <laughs> but he God is is there. That warm light is there in him. He's just in a point of denial. And um maybe the way that he's talking about all of this to somebody who's afraid, afraid with the coolness, the cool light behind him. Uh, uh, maybe that's just to allude to who, who he is inside and who he's going to eventually be. I don't know if that's me talking out of my ass, but that's what I came up with when you brought it up. No, I think that's, I think that's a really interesting idea. I, and I, I think that, you know, as you were talking, that's sort of the, I, that's sort of where I've been, I'm spiraling too. that, you know, that Meryl cause it kind of goes back to the idea of the music cutting out that Meryl being cut off and left alone kind of represents us feeling cut off and left alone. And he has nothing there. You know what I mean? It's just this cool light and it's just him grasping for whatever he can. And, um, and whereas Graham, it should be warm, but the cold light is on him, so he is cold and distant. But somewhere behind him is still this warmth. Somewhere back there is still yeah. this warm light, you know. And and he's not connected to it. He's separate from it right now. But it does give him that sense that he's still there's still it still should be a part of him that right that warmth. Yeah. So that's oh, yeah. Really, yeah, that's really cool. I'm really glad you pointed that out. And I'm really surprised I didn't notice that in the six times I've watched this in the last 24 hours. It's so hard to, to not – you know, one of the reasons I wanted to do this is because when you're emotionally absorbed in something, no matter how many times you watch it, it is really hard to pick apart the technical details of something that you love because inevitably five seconds in – you're all over the emotions. You're feeling it again. You're not. You're not. Yeah. You're not looking for how the magician is pulling off the trick. You just want to feel the trick again, and and so it's sort of this is sort of a nice exercise for us to really, you know, reexamine the things that might be part of the trick, um, but we went and missed otherwise. You know, and that's why I think so. I think that you missing that is is totally normal. That's why it's so hard to discuss the technique of something we love. Yeah, that's 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 awesome though. More. More props. This is a cool podcast idea, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ken. Um, so I guess that brings us to um, the last really important piece of the scene because it's really what holds it all together are the performances. When we've sort of not, haven't talked about that yet, but the performances are the glue of this scene, and I think they are they are something special mm, in the scene. Um, yes. you're, you're a big fan of Mel Gibson's performance. Now you said this is you think this is his best role, and this is his kind of his Oscar scene. You, you want to you really you really felt this from him. Yeah, I mean, he. I don't. I don't know what how people justify believing this when there's things that he's done outside of uh, uh, this that might have just been in a moment of anger. That that every. I mean, everybody has bad days, but uh, he, I believe part of this wonderful guy is in him. Like he. I mean, he sells. Uh, just to talk about the whole movie, he sells all the emotion in every scene of it. He does one of the most difficult things I've ever seen an actor do. I mean, not that I've ever tried to do it, but I have to imagine it has to be really extremely difficult to eat dinner and have a really mucusy cry at the same time. Uh, he, he, he's, he's all over it. I mean, you have to, everyone's looking to him to make all the right decisions and us as the audience are too, because as you said, we're left alone and, and he's just got so much gravitas here. And and in 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 his moments of feeling alone and fearful, we feel that with him. And even though he's saying nothing, but in this scene where he lays it all out for, 
you know, his, his brother, this is probably a conversation he's been meaning to have with his brother for years in a sense, just sort of say something about uh, the death of his wife or, or why he feels the way he does. Like it just, he, he gave it his all and Joaquin Phoenix is great. We've continued to see Joaquin Phoenix do amazing things in the following 12 years that it's been since then. Um, I, I wouldn't say this is Joaquin's best performance ever. It's amazing, but um, well, I don't think there's been a performance like this from Mel Gibson um, since, and arguably even before. It, it's a it's something that Mel Gibson doesn't get a lot of credit for being able to do. Although I think he was doing it for a long time in his career, which is to be able to give a quiet performance. You know, we all we all think of him as I can't believe I'm blanking on his character in Lethal Weapon's name. Oh man, it's um Murdoch, what is it? Yeah, yeah. Um he's you know, he, he, we all think of him as the everyone remembers him as the crazy guy doing the crazy things, but we also forget that opening scene when he's about to kill himself in Lethal Weapon. And he's not being funny crazy in that scene. Yeah. It's sad. He's totally. being he's really sad in that scene and and but you know everyone and when he goes home when when he goes in and just watches TV sadly yeah yeah, yeah you totally feel it all and and you know so we, but we all came out of it with the Mel Gibson can do tough and Mel Gibson can do crazy and and somewhere along the line we lost um, the fact that he was a really great actor even though I think there were movies that showed it like um, Ransom I think is a movie that shows that he can do it but that's again it's a big role you know it's a big crazy role where he's getting to shout a lot but now M Night Shyamalan brings him into this role and. All of his big scenes are extremely quiet, extremely quiet, and this scene is mm-hmm. is is restrained. It's his performance is extremely restrained in this scene, and and it's what makes it work. Because if it was a big, if he was crying or emoting a lot in this, it would feel all wrong. It would feel like it would feel like an Oscar speech in the wrong way, you know. But instead, yeah, totally. It, it, he's stoic in this scene. Yeah, this scene could have gone all wrong. This could have been like one of those if the wrong person was in it and the wrong choices were being made by the director. Like it could have been. I mean, the dialogue on the page could have, could seem cheesy even if if reading it straight through in a certain way, like out of context. I don't know. Like it's the mood he creates um, uh, is incredible. Yeah, I, I I love I love the fact that. Because the thing is, if, if he had given us a catharsis in this performance, if his performance had been emotional, it would have given us something to hold on to. But the fact that he is so distant makes this even harder to take. You know, he's not mm-hmm. feeling – it looks like he's not feeling anything when he's Absolutely. And that's what's so cool about the glare in their eyes. The glare in their eyes looks exactly the same, but their eyes say exactly how both of them are feeling and what they're feeling is totally different. I, and I don't know how to explain that. I mean, that's just the magic of these two brilliant actors. But it's nuts that like we can barely see their eyes, but we see so much inside of them. No, you're you're right. I, you know, I'm looking at these at the shots of them, and you know, uh, Joaquin Phoenix's eyes have the have the the eye light, the glare in them, and there's a sadness. They look almost I hate to use the word dewy, but um, you know, there's a, there's a sense of like softness to his gaze. You know, he's he's yearning. He wants. He wants something. He wants a hand to hold on to. And, and Mel Gibson's eyes are piercing. They're refusing. Cold. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, you're not getting anything from me. It's not only not do I have anything. I don't, you could be saying I don't have anything to give you, but it's more than that. It's like you, you need to stop expecting there to be anything yeah. for you. You know, there, there's this aspect in his eyes that he's like, I want you to wake up because I resent the fact that you still, you still think there's something out there um, and it needs to stop now. And there's a definite yeah. coldness in that. 
And how dare you, and sort of like, how dare you expect me to give that to you when I can't even give that to myself? Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a great, a, just a really great performance. And I, and I, and I do want to take a second to talk about Joaquin Phoenix's as well, because I, I, I like Joaquin Phoenix's performance in this because he is so aggressively normal as a person. And that's absolutely, be, that can be hard to pull off without being boring. <laughs> it's a really hard thing to pull off without being boring. And, and he's interesting. Yeah. He's like, seems like you kind of want to bum around with them. I mean, I, you know, he has that like, let's get a beer dude kind of. Yeah. Well, he's he's such an everyman. I mean, there was that scene earlier in the movie where uh, Officer Paskey is like, so Merrill, how's work at the gas station? And he just sort of rolls his eyes and goes, stimulating. Like, you know, <laughs> he, he he gets it. Like, life is life is what life is. And I'm here and I'm just trying to do my best. So he's very relatable in that way in this movie. It's it's hard to be a defined character and a relatable everyman at the same time. And and if you want to see good acting and you know there are there are there are performances out there that do this but movie Hollywood movies don't often give the actors the opportunity to do this. If you watch Joaquin's um face during the push in when Graham is finishing his story and then his shift from the fear and uncertainty that that speech has given him to his almost bravado in telling the story about how he's really a miracle man because of that time when the girl puked on herself the shift in his performance there is no dialogue to give him that shift there's no Mm -hmm. there's no he's not mid-conversation he's not reacting against anything he has to shift his performance from fear to bravado so that when he starts talking the bravado is kind of there and that is a really difficult thing to do because it's all you. Yeah. Well, it's all it's all you and what you can control, but also one of the hardest things about like the few times I've done acting is that like you you've been thinking about your own performance and what to do with yourself for all the time leading up to it, but you can't calculate what it's going to be like when you're actually there in the moment with the cameras on you and the other actor talking talking to you and listening becomes an insanely important part to be able to not not only be prepared to say your lines and act when you're prompted but to act in the meantime as well and the fact that like we're we are holding with Joaquin with Merrill um even though Mel Gibson's the one talking is um is it it shows how much he is listening and acting in that moment yeah absolutely and and you know I remember there's always this great line by um I think it's Marlon Brando who said you know when you're on the stage and you want to um, show what people what you're feeling. You have to show it, but when you're on can't, when you're on film, you just have to feel it. Um, I believe is the interesting, quote. and and that is really difficult. As a, you know, when you're acting, you know, I've, having worked with actors, you know, it's hard to to. I can see it's difficult to to find the place where you are feeling a thing and feeling a change in emotion. You know what I mean? You're not just feeling one thing, but feeling the shift in emotions you would feel if you were actually in that moment without being able to obviously emote anything, you know, without being able to just say like, I'm going to make myself smile now, you know, because that would be false and it would come off that much. So doing it all, doing it all in a, in a tiny shift like that, where you can see it is, is I, I think one of the most difficult things you can do as an actor. Right. And he nails it. And, and he just he just um, emulates this. Uh, I wish I could helpness throughout the whole movie, yeah. where he, he he doesn't know exactly what to do, but he's there for everyone. 
Definitely. Great. I, I don't know. If, I don't know if that's more him that I got that out of or uh, Shyamalan's writing, but it, uh, I, both both the fact that these actors can do so much with these and just this being, uh, I mean, movie scripts do great things all the time, but um, these are very well defined, memorable characters to me. Like. I, I remember their names and stuff, and it's because I've seen it a lot of times. But uh, this is a family story that I find very memorable. And a lot of movies aren't aren't you know you have core characters that are sort of stock, like you know the tough guy with the guns, and you know the damsel in distress, and all that. And there's none of that in this movie. And um, these people had to create these people who come across as real as anybody you would meet at the grocery store. Yeah, yeah, I. I completely agree. I think that's what makes this work so well are these these characters are so grounded and you get it from all angles from, you know, I think that this is a, a great synthesis of, of filmmaking technique and writing and acting that you have the writing that's quiet and that gives character moments and you have actors that are there to feel the things and to dive into them and you have a filmmaking technique that's almost minimalist that gets out of the way and we're constantly grounded in the quietness of a moment and in the subtle mm-hmm. changes of a moment that makes it real in a way that blazing around and and um, swooping around with the cameras would take away from us because we would be reacting to technique instead of reacting to the fact that we're stuck there with these characters and yeah. having to feel them. Totally. Um, well, so um, any um, clothing, closing thoughts on on this, on signs, on the scene, um, anything you what we want to wrap up with? Um, I just glanced through all of my notes and we hit everything I had written down actually. So awesome! I, I yeah, we're good. Every uh, everyone go see this movie if you haven't. Um, have you, uh, is this? How do you feel about this movie as as a whole and 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 the spectrum of Shyamalan films? I think it's I think it's my my second favorite of his movies. I, I think that uh, the Sixth Sense is still what I would consider his best movie overall. Um, I think it's the most complete movie. Anyways, um, but I, I'm a big fan of Signs. Actually, mm-hmm. I came out of It's Sign. definitely a great movie. It's fantastic. I mean, I, I came out of this movie buzzing. I, I very rarely come out of movies buzzing like I came out of this one. I came out really blown away by it. Um, I, I found that it, it diminished a little bit on a second watching for me just because of my problems with the ending, which to, to state, I've, I've talked about it on Twitter a little bit because um, it's kind of – it's, a, it's a, a, a movie with a theme that could come off a little treacly. And he pulls it off so well for 90% of it that even though I feel like he kind of stumbles at the end, I still like it. Um, but yeah, I, I so it's, I, whereas like I think Sixth Sense sticks the land, land, landing a little bit. I should say that overall, I'm very frustrated with M. Night Shyamalan as a filmmaker who I think is extremely talented but has increasingly lost his ability to tell coherent stories the way he used yeah. to. Um, I have yeah. not felt a story of his since Signs. That was the last movie of his that I really loved. Yeah, same here, man. I mean, I I, tr- I tried to defend him for a few years. I tried to be like, because every, I mean, you know, Martin Scorsese and Woody Allen have movies that weren't so great. Lady in the Water was, you know, it was whimsy. He was chasing fancy, a fancy, fantasy. But, uh, yeah, I don't know what's really happened. There's this book that um, was written by somebody who worked with him on Lady in the Water. It's apparently about Shyamalan going crazy. It's called The Man Who Heard Voices, and I'm really interested in reading about it. I just actually found out about it while um, clicking around in relation to this movie. So, um, But, yeah, I, I, I miss... And I like the village a lot too, but I think this is the peak. Like he, I think he incrementally got better into this, and then he started to decline with each film. Yeah, but yeah, 
But maybe filmmakers, one day, a filmmaker's later career doesn't affect the movies that were great. Sometimes people like to go back and it, retroactively knock down a movie, and I don't think that's fair. This is this is a great movie, and and The Sixth Sense is a great movie, and and I you know that I'm I'm never you don't lose those by making movies I don't like later. Yeah, good call. Good. Yeah, I'm. Way to go. A lot of cynics don't think that way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes you you oversee stuff and it, there's a period where it hurts to go back and watch stuff. And I think you just need to ride that out. You know, when an artist you really love, you feel like they betray your trust in them a little bit because they're not up to the standard that you would like them to hit. There's a period where going back to old stuff still hurts too. And I understand that. You let that pass. And then once it passes, you find your way back and you're like, man, I really love this movie. This is a good movie. And I think you, if you can find your yeah. way back to that. And actually, Ken, I want to let you know that you helped me do that with this film. So thank you. Because me coming back to this was... You're welcome. Uh, it rewarmed me on this film more than I had been. So thank you. No problem. I'm, I, I mean, thank you too, because I, I'm sure you're going to do a whole bunch of movies that I haven't seen. And now I'm going to have to watch all of them to listen to your podcast. <laughs> That's, that's excellent. And actually, I'm going to have to, too. Um, one of the upcoming movies I think I'm going to be doing is a scene from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which I have not seen before. So it's going to give me an opportunity to see a movie that I haven't. So it'll be exciting. Well, I haven't seen that either, so I'll be there with you. Awesome. Um, well, uh, Ken, do you want to just reiterate quickly where people can find you? Yeah, uh, I tweet about everything I do. You can mostly find me at the Ken Edwards on Twitter. That's Ken with two N's. Um, but if you want to get in contact with us about doing doing some animation for Batman Immortal, just go to batmanimmortal.com. Great. And, and, uh, and, and the podcast, so let's get to the point. I don't have a website for that, but I'd really love everyone to listen to it. You just type, so let's get to the point in iTunes, and it'll be there. Definitely listen. It's a great podcast, and Ken is a, a fantastic interviewer to, uh, to be guesting with. So you are in for a treat if you go listen to it. Um, as for me, I'm Eric Sippel. You can find me on Twitter at Salon. That's S-A-A-L-O-N. My blog is at Salon Moyo, S-A-A-L-O-N-M-U-Y-O dot com. And um, as I'm not sure exactly what the podcast is going to be called at this point, I can't tell you that. But there will be links on the blog, and um, I will have information there. Thank you for joining mm-hmm. us, Ken. No problem, man. And I hope I will be hearing you more than one last time. <laughs> I hope so, too. I hope so, too. Well, um, thank you very much, everyone, for listening, and um, enjoy your movies.